much more blood will be shed And how much more life will be taken And how much louder do we need to scream We are human We are human Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Ariel Astoria. Ariel is a poet, author, and activist. Ariel is also musically featured throughout this episode. You can get connected with Ariel and her work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. We are human. We are human. We are human. Today we have Ariel Astoria. And Ariel, you are a poet, and I'm sure there's so many more things about you, but who is Ariel Astoria to Ariel Astoria? Ooh, uh, I love questions like this. Um, Ariel Astoria to Ariel Astoria is, is an extension of me. I've kind of talked a little bit about this. So Astoria is my middle name. Um, oh. And then I have two other middle names, a last name. My name is now really long um, since adding another one <laughs> recently being <laughs> married. So um, Ariel Astoria is me. Um, it's this still extension of me. It's my name. Um, Astoria is my grandma's name. Mm. Um, but it's also this kind of like space of protecting um, Ariel Astoria, Lita Wilburn, Corfi, um, this other person. It is a long one. It is very, very long. We're kidding. It's, it's very long. Um, this person of me. So um, Ariel Astoria is the creative, is the artist, um, is the more visual to everyone else kind of person. Mm. Um, and then you have Ari, um, who is at home watering her plants, you know, um, <laughs> being with her husband, eating a breakfast burrito. Um, and so, yeah, I'm an artist. I'm an author. I'm a storyteller. Um, I believe deeply in feeling um, and inviting others into that space as well. Mm. I find that really interesting about how our names and what one might call us really is dependent on who that person knows about us, right? So mm. the fact that you are Ari to some people means mm. that you are a certain kind of your person to that, uh, to those mm. people. I just find yeah. that so interesting. You know, like a lot of our nicknames are kind of around that. Like, you know, you get mm -hmm. some nicknames around your friend group and then you might have your own kind of childhood nickname from your family. And then right. you have kind of your you know sort of professional name or whatever. Just always right. so interesting, like the kind of names that we use because it's a different representation for certain diff different people. It's just very fascinating mm -hmm. that we do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. So you're an accomplished poet. How did you get into poetry? Yeah, so I started with theater, actually. Um, kind of always have been in the arts, in love with the arts, connected to the arts. 
Um, in seventh grade, my history teacher was a little different. Um, she kind of reminded me of a lot of Miss Frizzle um, from the Magic School Bus. She just was like very out there. Um, I think that was the only time I actually liked history class um, because she made it very tangible and very real. Um, and everything was kind of like this stage. And it was cool to watch these moments in our history books literally come to life um, on a stage. And so our final project was to perform a Shakespeare play, which was Midsummer Night's Dream. And um, something kind of broke open in, mm. in me in that play. I was only Helena part two, um, but I nailed that part two. And um, I didn't know at that time, but she had told my mom um, after our performance, like, you have to put her in the arts. Um, so then I went to an arts high school um, and I did school like everyone else, but from eight to 12, we had academics. From 12 to one, we had lunch. And then from one to 4.30, you were in your emphasis and my emphasis with theater. Um, so I wrote a lot of plays and monologues and it was kind of like this dabbling into vulnerability. If I could step into the shoes of other people, um, then eventually I would learn how to step into my own shoes with spoken word. And so, um, that kind of trickled my, a lot of the plays and monologues and things that I wrote were in perspective of real people. So Coretta Scott King Jr. Um, and what a, a love poem about what it means to love Martin Luther King as mm. a person and as a husband and as a partner and not as um, a historical figure and what that looks like. Um, Emmett Till's mother, um, what it felt like, could have felt like to lose a child, um, to sit with that kind of grief. And um, those kind of turn into my spoken word pieces without really knowing what that was at the time um, and then college came around and I was like mm, theater was fun and um, that was very um, high schoolish and naive and so I pursued psychology and theater in college because I was like how do I have a mix of both mm -hmm. the practical the not so practical and have a job at the end of it all uh, which is uh, funny to think about now and um, so I studied psychology and theater for a long time and then eventually I dropped theater because I was like I'm not going to be on stage um, and then shortly after I ended up on a competitive poetry team for two years and then became president of our poetry club and then everything kind of like bursted open from there so I've guess I've kind of always been made to be on a stage mm. um, which I avoided for a long time especially um, as a Christian, as a pastor's kid, um, it was kind of like, can you do the industry thing um, and it still be glorifying to God? Um, and what does that look like? And mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, that's kind of how I dabbled into both. But theater is kind of my first love and then spoken word branched out of that. That's incredible. At what point did you get a sense that you would be able to do this as a career? So it's one thing, you know, to do it in college or whatever, but to eventually get to a point where you're doing something like spoken word as a career. I mean, there must right. have been a, a, a point in your life where that kind of happened or maybe an event. Yeah. or something. It wasn't until pretty much the end of college. Um, so I went to a private Christian university and we had chapels and all that stuff. And there was a student speaks chapel. Um, and I got asked to be the the student who did student speaks chapel so I got to do poetry and like a 45 minute or so sermon with both and I remember getting off stage and just this electric like feeling and kind of like throwing up this whisper prayer of like if I were to do that for the rest of my life I think I would you know and just kind of like running in the opposite direction <laughs> after sending that up 
And so everything after that was kind of like that little whisper prayer declaration was kind of this like finally. And then it just kind of went madness from there. So I kept getting asked to either speak. I was a resident advisor. So I kept getting asked to speak with other resident advisor in their halls and things like that um, at churches and conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, and people were either finding me through word of mouth or somehow through Instagram and it just kind of opened. And so here I am in my last two years of college and I'm doing not really anything that I thought I was supposed to be doing. Um, I loved psychology, but I, I knew I never wanted to be in an office. I never wanted to be, you know, like I didn't want it to be this stagnant thing. I wanted it to be incorporated in other things. And so it was those last two years and I just I graduated. I had no plan, which was not like me as an oldest child. Um, and I just kind of like, what if I, what if I spend this next year as a creative? And I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't know what in the world that looked like. I was stubborn. So I wasn't going home. Um, I would eat ramen and sleep out of my car if I needed to um, and figure it out. And I I did. Um, So I graduated in 2015 and I've been full-time freelance since. So one of the things I love about your poetry is that you incorporate spirituality and theology in these really incredible ways. So in what ways do you incorporate spirituality and theology in your poetry and yeah, how does it manifest? Yeah. Um, I kind of see it often as this, like this orb. I definitely am in a very different space than I was when I, when I first started. So I think um, how I approach both of those concepts um, show up really differently mm. in this space of like learning how to ask questions and, and learning I can explore. And then there's this, you know, wild and whimsy aspect of spirituality that isn't always controlled and sure. Um, and, but I think I've always had hints of that in my poetry. Mm. I've kind of always, my dad, um, who is a uh, Baptist pastor, affectionately calls me his uh, liberal Christian hippie daughter. <laughs> Are you sure it's affectionately? He's affectionately calling you that? It makes it both. Okay, I think okay. It's a mix All of right. like, I'm a little afraid that you're that. You're that. <laughs> and also like, I'm embracing that that is who you are. I think it's a good, you know, um, right. <laughs> a little bit of both. Um, and so I think I've always wanted to be an artist um, who could kind of reach everyone, no matter where mm. they were at. You know, like I don't, I never wanted to just talk to Christians. I never wanted to just talk to people who knew of love and knew of light. Like I kind of always wanted to talk to everyone. And so incorporating that into, into the poetry, and it's not necessarily like an active decision to do um, more so than it is like kind of how we were talking about of, of embodiment. It's just this orb of me thinking and believing there's something um, bigger that mm. holds and ties and threads all of this together. Um, And so naturally how I see that um, comes out in um, reminding people you are that they're enough, you know, reminding people of, um, of this bigger existence um, and living that we have as human beings um, and what that looks like. And so I wanted it to be a message that anyone could hear and resonate with no matter where they fell um, within spiritual or not spiritual Mm -hmm. or um, having a theology background or not having a theology background Mm -hmm. and um, still having it be applicable. So you mentioned that you're a Baptist uh, pastor's kid. So, and and you mentioned that you certainly have sort of changed, right? Like you you are the the liberal liberal hippie pastor's (laughs) daughter. 
So things have changed for you theologically, and I'm a firm believer that something like the arts really can have an impact in our theology. So Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about how poetry and even maybe other pieces of art have shaped and changed your theology to what it is today? Mm, Yeah, I think the most prime example is having grown up with like uh, I called it I call it the Katy Perry phenomenon um this fear that you that once you get in the industry you know you're gonna lose yourself you're gonna lose your faith you're gonna lose your um who you are and your giftings and what they're for and so I really kind of like dabbled in mostly churches mostly conferences but always had been also at these yoga retreats and at these other things that I felt like there was still something like this tingle there you know there was still this something there um and so I think I I kind of like it really started to affect me when I'm like I would go to an open mic or I used to host open mics before um the pandemic and it was like this feels like the same um energy the same tone the same connectability Mm -hmm. that happens in a church except it's, it's not a Sunday. There are no pews. No one is not, there is no sermon. Mm. Um, it's just people on a stage, um, spewing the most vulnerable and, um, exposed parts of themselves beautifully and being accepted in return. And that really started to shift of like, isn't this also church, you know, Mm. like, isn't this also what it means, um, to gather on holy ground? And, and really leaning into that and also feeling like the arts in general and that there was something always very spiritual there. Like how does one hear a song, hear a poem and it connects so deeply to untold and told start parts of who we are, parts of our experiences. Like there are, there's an actual tangible response from our bodies um, that happens when we hear music. Like how could there not, you know, be something there? Mm. Um, same for seeing an art piece, you know, there's something about this connectability to art and spirit um, that then relates back to us as, as uh as spirit and body, um, that was just so real and so tangible. And so I've always been very aware of that. And I think that kind of started to be like, what well, could this be a church? You know, like, mm. could, is this I'm not a pastor per se, but is this a holy thing um, that I have the honor of curating that people are being invited into um, and what that has looked like? And so now I am in a space where I'm like, I think all art is holy. You, you mm. just have to find it um, or we just have to listen closely to it um, instead of just kind of having always been like, nope, that's bad. Nope, you can't put that in your spirit. Nope, that's this, 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 you know, like, which sure, some of it can be, it depends on the spirit. Um, but also at the same time, I think there is more than not something um, really real and, and spiritual there. You, at the beginning of that uh, comment, you mentioned how people were really vulnerable with one another in something like an open mic or in other poetry events that you had put on and had experienced. And I'm kind of curious, and maybe maybe this isn't the case with the tradition and church you grew up in, but was there this kind of vulnerability that you really appreciated that maybe wasn't present in the church mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. drew you to something like poetry and these poetry events? Was there this level of vulnerability that you just didn't quite experience and you felt like this is, this is real, this is where mm-hmm. authenticity is? 
that maybe, I don't know, maybe there was more of a facade in the church. I know a lot of people maybe would experience something like that. I don't know if that was your experience or not, but I'm just curious. There was definitely a balance of it because I'm coming from a few different places. I'm coming from places of where for most of my life, my dad was my pastor, you Mm -hmm. know, so that vulnerability um, was was there um however it was just very much so it solely existed in the church you know it solely mm-hmm. existed as an as a as an example um as a way to um induce some type of reaction from people mm-hmm. and then i'm also coming from it as a performer side in churches um where i i i knew the poems that were going to make people fall out on their <laughs> knees you know like i knew the pieces um that were going to elicit a certain response and so knowing that i have been part of that curating vulnerability curated vulnerability. Um, I think as I've leaned more into where I'm at, you know, as a, as a person with a platform, whatever that means. And, um, as a person who is seen on stages and in spotlights, this concept of transcendent, um, vulnerability that I'm not one way in one place. And then another, and another place, I'm an entirely different person, but that Mm. this vulnerability, this aspect of who I am, who I'm seeing, I am in this space is also who I am on stage. It's also mm-hmm. who I am behind the screen, you know, and so on and so forth. And so I think that was what I couldn't see. I couldn't see the transcendent vulnerability. I saw that there were hints to it. Um, but I think for even in our last couple of years, that vulnerability became this hype buzzword and everybody wanted to be vulnerable. And then the does that just diminish our ability to be vulnerable in the first place? And, and it became this still surface leveled way of, I can, I can show you me, but I'm not actually showing you me. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think if anything, this last year, it wasn't until I really saw a brokenness in that first version of trans of vulnerability now into this, like, we can't hide when we're uncomfortable anymore. You know, like we can't hide when like, we don't want to do something. And so I think I missed that concept of transcendent vulnerability um, and it just being still very surfaced leveled um, mm-hmm. for, for most places. And that, that's not for everything, but in, in most places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've already touched on this a little bit, but I'd love to dive into this a little bit more. So a lot of your work is centered around the body. And this is something I just mm-hmm. love so much around your work. How is poetry an embodied act? Mm. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, personally, like, um, pen to paper, fingers to keyboard is, is a constant um, embodiment. It's a, and it's an embodiment, because when you, when you embody something, you in that moment are not yourself, you are that thing. Um, And so every time a poem comes, it, I often say spilling instead of writing. Um, because it's this like gushing experience. It's like this, I am the poem in that moment. And my body's only purpose is then to get the poem out on whatever um, thing I have to use at that moment. And so um, I think that is kind of how my 
my own process in, but then at the same time, um, being able to share it with people creates this moment um, where they then can step into their own body in that moment. Mm. Um, and usually that involves um, maybe a tear, you know, um, maybe a moment of like, I am feeling a lot of things like, what is this girl up there who I don't know? Why do I feel like she's reading the most vulnerable parts of, of my journal entries, you know? And so it's, it's all about creating this experience of in those moments. And we are no longer physical spaces. In fact, you know, we are, we all full souls in those moments um, tapped into these really deep experiences that make us full and whole. Um, But oftentimes we tend to push down um, and ignore and, um, yeah, I think that end. And then on the other end, I talk a lot about being physically home is what I call it. Um, being physically here mm. um, in this space that we get to call flesh and bones and that we get to live daily. Um, because I think of a lot, my own growing up in, you know, 90s purity culture and being told for a long time that we are not bodies, we're only souls, mm-hmm. you know? So a lot of my work was coming back to um, being body and then finding that balance of being both. Mm. Similarly, because your work sort of touches a lot on theology, especially theology around mm-hmm. the body, what does it mean to you that theology is embodied? Mm. Oh my gosh. I think this one is so, this one finds a twofold for me as well. The first the first one is if you look at scripture and Jesus leaving, um, he left a spirit. So is that spirit then around us? Um, or is that spirit then in us? Mm-hmm. Um, which is a level of embodiment there. But then um also what are what is that spirit? Uh is that spirit love, you know, is that spirit understanding and empathy, um, mm. and social justice and what that thing is that we're fully living, breathing now examples of. And then the other end of it, I think, is I think for me, I grew up with a lot of head stuff, you know, like you read it, you memorize it, you recite it, uh, you know, like it's just all very up here and it's very sure and it's very certain, but it's all here, you know, it's and and I I live in in the heart form. I'm an Enneagram four. So I I live here in the heart, I live here in the gut, I live here in the like walk in a room and my fingers are freaking out and I'm like, there's something happening here. And so that embodiment of something very tangible um, that we can't see anymore. Um, So then that is the hands and feet of Jesus then, um, right? That we would hold and that we would walk people um, closer to each other um, and closer to, gosh, I love that's really deep and unfathomable. Mm. And yet we get to be living, breathing examples of it, Mm. you know? magic in your boat There's magic in your eyes There's magic swimming all around in your mind You strike me as somebody who is really in tune with their body 
And feel free to share as much or as little as you'd like around this question. But what have you learned from your body lately? Mm. I like to say that I'm I'm a sponge. Um, so I I will walk into a room and I'm like, oh, somebody is this, you know, somebody is this, somebody is this. And I just kind of like take in all of that. Um I've also learned um, just a lot about like what that means of how much to take of other people um, and not and how much not to. I've been practicing yoga for quite a few years, and I think it's the only exercise um, that I felt my body fully responding to, Mm -hmm. like Zumba, going on walks. Those are things I felt like I did. Um, but it wasn't really until yoga uh, where I felt like, oh, no, there is a unity here. Um, between me, mind, you know, spirit and physical self. Mm -hmm. And um, something about like giving myself that permission of just like a quick 10 minute flow every morning and just like what that has looked like. Um, And so, yeah, my body is teaching me a lot about how to listen to myself and not to consider that selfish Mm -hmm. or, um, or not spiritual or, or, you know, or not theologically sound, um, Mm -hmm. but just to tune in tune in here and check in here. And so, yeah, it's also, I've been leaning more into this stillness space, especially coming out of this year and things starting to open and, and, you know, getting booked again. It's just like, okay, but how do we still have that rest here um, and have that Mm -hmm. permission to not do um and to be slow with our mornings um and to really um yeah to really listen and lean into that but i'm a huge believer in listening to our bodies because they often more often than not are speaking if we yeah actually pay attention one of the things i've just been really fascinated by uh in some of the work that i've been doing in my theological studies is i'm learning a lot about embodied cognition and Mm. what we have actually found from like science is that our cognition doesn't just happen in our brain like we've maybe Mm -hmm. classically thought to be true but we actually do have like memory and experiences within the entirety of our body so Mm. like our our neural system isn't just located in our brain we have a neural system all throughout our body and that neural system is able to experience the world and have memory and yeah like it's able to be in the world just in the way that our brain is Uh, maybe not to Mm -hmm. the capacity that our brain does but in, in its own unique ways and it's just so fascinating as like you talk a lot about like your body listening it's because like our bodies actually are experiencing the world and they can mm. act, like they, they like we know this from science like right. they actually do inform um ourselves and because they mm. actually are experiencing the world and so we like really do need to listen wow. to the entirety of our body not just what is happening within our brains mm-hmm yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Um, it reminds me of, I haven't read it yet, but the body keeps score, yes. you know, and, um, that, that conversation of, um, what we, what we hold here, all our traumas, all our experiences, you know, and it's like, oh, I have a migraine. Why do I have a migraine? And that migraine being, you know, less about like, oh, I ate something necessarily or, but it's like, no, I've been stressed, you know, for the past four days and I haven't Mm -hmm. processed any of it, just little things like that. And so I definitely have, um, really been leaning into just like the gentleness of listening and, um, yeah, how much, is happening here that we kind of just ignore often. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Mm-hmm. I love that. 
One of the things that I love about the work of liberation in the world is it requires so many of us. It requires mm-hmm. not only just people on the streets as activists. It doesn't. Uh, it's not only limited to people who maybe are doctors or whatever it might be. Like it takes all of us, including poets. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, like, what is it, like, like, what is it about the work of poetry that you think plays a really important role in the work of liberation in the world um i mean you're Mm -hmm. you're part of a long lineage of incredible black writers and poets like langston Mm -hmm. hughes and and even james baldwin like they clearly saw that there was an importance of the creative creative writing that plays a role in the work of liberation so anyway i'm just curious what your own thoughts are around the, the role of poetry in the work of liberation Yeah, well, I mean, even just those examples alone and how how present and real they feel today. Like um, Mm. there's a museum gallery that's open right now um, in in down or like downtown HLA near UCLA. It's called the Hamry Museum. And one of the first exhibits when you walk in is this video montage of um, of James Baldwin and you hear his voice overlay and it's over all these Mm. videos. And that has been a common theme in a lot of different museums and stuff. And so all that to say, those are, those are people who are not, not here necessarily anymore, a lot of them, but the work is still here. Mm. Um, And I think that just goes to shape, goes to, I don't know why an accent is coming out of my mouth right now, Um, (laughs) but that just um, goes to show how I think, how prophetic I think poetry is and just arts in general, Um, Mm -hmm. but specifically poetry, um, we're a lot of times, especially, I mean, if you look at like the origin of spoken word, it was all speaking to yes, what is, but mostly to what will be, Mm. Um, which is why James Baldwin is just all over the place right now, because he was speaking to what we're experiencing now. Mm. Yes, it was being, you know, experienced and happening then, but even more so it became more tangible now um, because of how present it is today too. And so I think there's this huge propheticness to poetry um, that kind of you is used as a as a blueprint almost as a as a guideline almost to yes this is where we are um yes this is where we we were but however what I'm speaking to is uh, tangible tools um knowledge resources for where we will be as a mm. society and where we're moving towards mm. um and I've kind of always kind of felt like listen now but make sure you keep it because it's probably going to resonate more later you know than it will in this present moment kind of like that delayed reaction um a little bit but society-wide if you Mm -hmm. will Mm -hmm. yeah so i've got a couple questions that are a little bit more fun questions before i ask another one a serious one so first of which so as a poet i'm sure you've encountered many 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 words what are some of your favorite words? Oh my goodness. I talk a lot about um, waters, thematic type themes um, in my pieces. Um, so anything that has to do with like flow, um, anything that has to do um, with cadence, um, just rhythm. I've been really in tune with those words right now. And um, yeah, glorious is a word that I always tend to come back to as well. And 
Yeah, I have lots of words. I mean, I have a thesaurus app on my phone. So that just kind of shows <laughs> like I like looking up something and seeing what else, how else to say the same thing mm. is kind of like my favorite. I think I'm more about like that kind of full rounded. How do I say many things, but in the same kind of word or say it differently? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but. I've always felt like as I've written papers for seminary, it always feels like almost half the time of writing the paper is finding a synonym for a word Mm -hmm. that I'm like, I don't know if I really want to use this. I'll settle on it if I have to, but I really, really want something else. And so I spend like most of my time actually writing the paper actually on just finding the right synonym. (laughs) Yes, it's real because there's so many, I mean... Uh, even with like, you know, we're in a deconstructing phase right now. I've never felt like that word, you know, I've never identified with that word. So I'm like, how else can I explain this unraveling, unfolding, relearning? And so I call it unfolding. It's kind of like my word for it. Mm. So it's just like, this is the word, this is kind of what I'm trying to say, but what else, how else can I say it? Um, Especially with seminary. I'm like, I don't know that life, but both my parents went to seminary. So (laughs) I know I am associated with that life. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So you are killing it on Instagram. You have such a beautifully curated posting and everything. You're just, it's so good. How can I step up my Instagram game, Ariel? I, okay. I tell people it's all storytelling, um, but it's your storytelling. All social media is, is this thread and connection of all these stories from all over the world. We think about when we first had our MySpaces and our Facebooks, (laughs) that was to connect with people either that we hadn't seen in years or, you know, to see what's happening in their lives. So it's all storytelling. So if it doesn't matter to you, then it probably won't matter to other people. So post things you actually care about. Um, I, like I said, I'm an Enneagram four. So aesthetic is not a uh, uh, luxury. It's a, it is a necessity. Yep. So my page looks the way it looks because I need it to look that way. I could care less about who's looking at it. It's mostly for me. So I curate something that feels like something um, mm-hmm. as well. And so I think that transcendent authenticity, again, I like when I'm on stages, I'm creating a certain environment. So the same goes for my Instagram. And when people come into my page, I want it to be like an experience ultimately, you know, whether it be joy, whether it be inspiration, whether it just be like finding their your own um, embodiment in, inside your own skin as well. And so um, post what you like. Um, if you want it to be pretty, make it pretty. Um, but also yeah, not falling into trap of just like, well, this is trend right now, or I should be posting this. If I don't have anything to say, I'm not going to share. Um, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. So um, yeah, let it be something you're excited about. Um, remember that you're sharing a story and that ultimately people are there because something about who you are relates back to who they are. Mm-hmm. If you want to put a hashtag on it, put a hashtag on it, but make sure it goes somewhere. <laughs> that you know it's going to go and not just like a dead hashtag like beach. So 
Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the aesthetic piece because as soon as I saw your video here on Zoom and I saw your your office space, I'm like, yep, everything seems <laughs> to check out because it's all the same type of coloring. And it's like, I think what uh, what do they describe that as nude colors? Maybe got yes, a lot the, of that. Even the, I, the I see. Yep. Mm-hmm. Those neutrals. Yep. And even your wristband for your, your <laughs> Apple watch. Yep. It's I'm like this all seems to check out the plants. I mean, it, it does. Even your office space is exactly what you would think based on your instagram thank you i really appreciate i (laughs) appreciate i appreciate the consistency (laughs) so one more serious question before uh we sign off here but Mm -hmm. how is it that your work is inspiring and liberating theological work Mm. and i know we've maybe touched a little bit about this but uh yeah feel free to kind of talk about it however you want yeah i think i've kind of always wanted this like breaking of chains breaking out of cages kind of feel Mm -hmm. um to what I do whether that was like reminding people there that they're enough which breaks you know the lie or or the cage or the shackle that tells them otherwise right um especially for women I think that was like a huge part I think it's definitely ventured out now but that was like my my first initial like this is who I'm talking to this is my audience everyone else who benefits up from it that's great but like this is who I'm talking to I'm talking to and um, the people who feel like they can't be fully themselves because of the roles they play um who feel as they can't exist within their physical bodies um, because we've been told for so long that we couldn't, um, that they were sins, that they were this and that. Um, and so I, I wrote for that. Um, um, I have a line in my poem, you know, that says this, this is for um, the lioness. Do not let them cage the lioness in your guts. Um, mm-hmm. Ariel means lion of God. Um, and I kind of have kind of said that there's a lioness and I'm in everyone. Um, and so kind of breaking out this beautiful and majestic and courageous parts of who we are um, because we were told that we couldn't be those things, you know, mm. that we had to be subdued, that we had to be small. Um, and I think I'm working more towards being more open in the liberating sense. I would like, I would like to be more. I have, I have thoughts about more. I still uh, kind of teeter on that fear of how it will be viewed, um, of mm. being, you know, ostracized or being told I'm not a, um, a good Christian, of having uncomfortable conversations uh, with my parents that I don't want to have. So mm. there are things I know I, I still want to say, um, mm. and so leaning more towards even my own liberation innocence and uh yeah but i do think there is a concept of of opening cages whatever that cages that we exist in mm-hmm. or breaking chains whatever those chains that keep us from moving forward and stepping into the fullness of of who we are and who we're meant to be mm, beautiful last question how can listeners get connected to you and your work yeah everything is my name so ariel astoria that's two l's E E S T O R I A. That's dot com. Um, my website is pretty much a one stop hub for all my books. Links to Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud if you're underground like that, um, <laughs> as well as um, some YouTube videos. And um, I respond to Instagram like they are text messages. So do not hesitate to mm. DM me. Um, and I mostly live in Instagram. But if you want to see a different side of me, you can go to Twitter. 
Yeah. It, it is a different side, but it's it, great. It is. Thank you. <laughs> Thank well, Arielle, it's so great to connect with you. And again, I have really loved getting to know your work a little bit more. And it's just so great to chat a little bit more about it and the theology that's behind all of it. It's just so great. So thank you so much thank for you. sharing a little bit more about your work. Thanks for having me. Oftentimes, the narratives of Black people, Black stories, and Black history are painted in pain, abuse, grief, and destruction. If you'd like to connect with Arielle and her work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates breath to our present inhales and exhales and strides we sow because they tended we reap because they bled we stand because they bent became the spines in which we could stand on history a series of connections that we have attempted to say has no correlation to one another but that was never the truth see black history is the reminder the reminder that we have always been a collective, and it's painful to be conscious of all the ways we have forgotten that, all the tension created from us versus them, all the times we segregated.